This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility-scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of October 9th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, with you as always from Washington, D.C. This week, we will talk with Solar City CEO Lyndon Rive about the company's evolving approach to deploying solar. And then we'll look at the very different business strategies of two leading independent power producers, NRG and Dynagy. And finally, we'll talk about this year's Nobel Prize in Physics, which was given to the inventors of blue LEDs. But first, it's been a tough fall for us over here in D.C. The Washington football team is struggling once again. Perhaps uh, no big surprise there. But far more crushing to our collective spirits was the Nationals' loss to the San Francisco Giants on Tuesday. The uh, best team in the National League losing to the wildcard team. Uh, Catherine could barely drag herself out of bed today to come join us. You doing all right over there? Oh, it was crushing. So I'm sitting this morning at a meeting with Eddie PA with a Nationals pen in my hand, which then proceeds to run out of ink, just <laughs> further crushing me. <laughs> yes. Catherine is, of course, not just a rabid Nationals fan, but our co-host and a partner over at the clean energy public policy firm, 38 North Solutions. And Jigger Shaw is with us as well. He's uh, a founder of Sun Edison and a partner at Clean Feed Investors, our regular co-host, with us from New York City. Jigger, you got baseball on the mind this October at, at all? No, I'm a diehard Cubs fan, and so I get disappointed regularly. Yeah, so you, you never have baseball on the mind in, in October then. Exactly. <laughs> all right, enough about baseball. Let's turn to our guest this week. It is Lyndon Rive, the CEO and co-founder of Solar City. Well, actually, wait, hold on. Now that I think of it, I guess we shouldn't drop baseball quite yet because Lyndon's over there in the Bay Area in San Mateo, California. Uh, Lyndon, firstly, thank you so much for being here. And secondly, are you a, a San Francisco Giants fan? You know, you know I, I just haven't uh, uh, got into American sports yet. Um, I, uh, I, I've, I've just, I just haven't managed to connect to that. Um, work all the time, and when I find time, I just haven't got into to sports. So, But you do do, is it underwater polo? Uh, oh, exactly. It's underwater hockey. People call oh, that's it right, yeah. The, uh, but I do do that. And actually, I play that quite a bit. I, uh, I play for the U.S. team. Um, uh, in fact, if you want to hear a crazy story, the, the way I was able to stay in the country um, was through underwater hockey. I, uh, I started a software business in, 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 in the Bay Area. My visa expired. And uh, uh, because I never went to university, I don't have a degree. Um, I, I couldn't get a, a visa, and uh, my wife wasn't working then for a while. Uh, she was going crazy at home, uh, but she also plays underwater hockey, and we both play for the U.S. team. So she managed to get a green card through underwater hockey, and because I'm mani- uh, married to her, I got my green card. But um, 
the fact that I was employing 280 people, uh, eventually sold the company to Dell Computers. No, that didn't count. But underwater hockey, got <laughs> my green card. Well, the solar industry is very thankful for the sport of underwater hockey then. Underwater hockey probably uses that as a reason to, to keep its funding going. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it's funny. Actually, you, you learn a lot of things in the solar industry. Um, uh, that, that We learn a lot of things in hockey, underwater hockey that you can apply into the solar industry. And one of those things is, is how to do uh, lots of stuff with holding your breath. And it's kind of like the, the solar industry. You just got to hold your breath and just keep on grinding. <laughs> That's exactly it. Oh, that's great. So let's go on to the business of hand, which is the solar business. Um, from the outside looking in, Solar City is a much different company than it was, say, a year and a half ago. It has made numerous acquisitions in an attempt to control nearly every part of the value chain from hardware to customer acquisition. Most recently, Solar City acquired the high efficiency solar manufacturer. Salevo and broke ground on a gigawatt scale production facility in Buffalo, New York. The company now has around 7,000 employees, a market cap of $5.3 billion, and a 30% share of the U.S. residential solar market. So where is it headed next? Uh, Lyndon, since SolarCity went public, you've made, I think, around a half dozen acquisitions to vertically integrate yourself further. Um, I'd love to know if you could pick one out. Like, is there any one that excites you the most or you think is most representative of your strategy? No, it, it's, it, there's no one solar bullet here. Um, when you look at the, uh, the cost curve and where solar, solar has to go down to, it, every penny matters. So you have to look at where do you take out these little pennies uh, and then you look at the value chain and you go, okay, well, I can take a penny out in, in the mounting hardware. I can start taking some pennies out in the, the modules. Um, uh, I can start taking pennies out in, in custom acquisition, uh, and then eventually you can start taking pennies out in, in different financing. So, so you, you, all the pennies add up, um, and that gets the, the total cost down. But, but there's not one that, that's better than the other. Um, some of the bets are bigger, uh, like the manufacturing facility, it's, it's going to be a bigger investment, but I'm, I'm highly confident it's going to yield multiple pennies. Um, uh, in fact, it's, it's going to be significant cost reduction when we get that up and running. Yeah, let's talk about that manufacturing play. So you recently closed the acquisition of Salevo. You broke ground on that um, eventual one gigawatt production plant in Buffalo. And I think a lot of people are split on the wisdom of this move, right? I mean, U.S. solar manufacturing has largely failed in this country to date, most, mostly due to competition from China. Um, I mean, heck, it doesn't even really matter what country you're in. Manufacturing has just been incredibly tough. And now you're making a big bet, a very big bet on U.S. manufacturing that it can work on this large scale. Why does SolarCity think being a producer of modules is a good idea, despite all the gruesome evidence to the contrary? Yeah, I mean, I may be in the minority in this camp, but I am convinced that there's going to be a supply constraint. Uh, it may not be next year, and it may not be the following year, but, but it could definitely be the, the, the year after that. If, if, you, if you look at uh, our growth, we've, we've doubled every year for the, uh, for the last eight years. Um, now, at some point, you can't keep on doubling because you run out of people on, on the planet. Um, but uh, I do think that if you maintain that growth, just to say for the next few years, then it would go from one gig next year, which we've already forecasted. If you maintain the 100% growth rate on that, then it would be two gigs. If you maintain the 100% growth rate on that, then it would be four gigs. Um, 
when you hit to that scale, where does the supply come from? And, and the financial supply. Um, I, I don't know who's building it. And, and you can't build it just by like, hello, yeah, it shows up, yeah, yeah, it's four gigawatts of supply. Um, I, I don't know who would be building it. And so if, if I don't know who's building it and I can't see a clear path towards it, and uh, uh, we have aspirations to achieve those goals, then that's going to be re uh, restricting us from achieving those goals. I think, I mean, I guess the question really, Lyndon, for me is more existential about that because I think our listeners are more interested in trying to figure out vertical versus horizontal integration. I mean, you know, I mean, you guys are vertically integrated in terms of lead flow, in terms of, you know, sales processing, back office servicing, uh, installation, financing, securitization, now manufacturing. You've got manufacturing of the ZEP piece as well. I mean, at what point does, you know, is it hard for you to be best in class in all of those areas? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good point. Like, you, just, you definitely don't want to take a vertical integration if you don't have the right scale. So, so the, um, it would be a bad idea to get into something as like manufacturing if you can't become the largest manufacturer in the world. Like, it, 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 you have to be at significant scale above anyone else for you to consider that. Um, and uh, I, I actually view the, the, the gigawatt facility as just, just the start. Uh, it won't be long before we have to kick off the five gigawatt facility, and then that would be the largest manufacturing facility in the world. Um, so the, if you don't do it at scale, then you, you're essentially just compounding inefficiencies. I, I totally agree with you. It's, it's really important that if you want to be the best at that job, you, you have to have the scale in order to do it. Right, but I mean, I guess when you look at the Gigaton factory that Tesla did, they sort of did that in in conjunction with Panasonic. So why wouldn't you guys just do this in conjunction with Canadian Solar or in conjunction with, you know, somebody else that would bring the manufacturing expertise? Oh, well, we are. I mean, that, that's the that, that's the purpose of the Saliva acquisition. Um, uh, the so now now you got to do two things. You have to hit the supply, which is, is one ingredient. And so then you go to yourself, okay, what happens if there is no supply constraints? So now you have all this capacity. Well, then you want to have a better product. Um, so, so you want to, you want to have a double hedger. Um, if I'm wrong and there won't be a supply constraint, okay, then I better have a better product because otherwise, wh why do it? And so, so this is why we, ac we acquired a team versus trying to do it ourselves. This team has been at it for uh, six years. Um, so it's uh, five years. Um, and uh, they have tremendous expertise in this. They actually, and it's one of the key things why we, we we chose them versus some others. Others were still too much in the R and D phase. These guys have proven technology that is working, is producing 30 megawatts a year right now, um, at a cost, uh, at a high efficiency, at a cost structure lower than any other high efficiency uh, in the market. So you go, okay, at a low volume, at 30 uh, megawatts. It's already at a lower cost structure than any other high-efficiency product. Um, if you apply high volume to this, what's the cost structure can, that you can achieve? Um, and so we, we look at the math and we go, okay, we, we're fairly convinced we can hit uh, cost structures at parity to standard efficiency uh, product. So then we would have a gigawatt capacity at the cost structure of a standard efficiency product, but except it's a high-efficiency module, 
the high efficiency module then it gives us a significant benefit in our whole BOS, the balance of systems, so the labor and, and uh, all the mounting hardware, the copper, everything else that goes with it. Uh, and so there we actually see a significant savings. So we did have a partner in, in this. We, we didn't do this on our own. I want to go back to something that you said, and that is like the captive, the captive demand that you expect to have. So in the coming years, you know, thousands of megawatts, and, and you'll continually build off of that. And, and that says to me that you don't necessarily think net metering battles or utility opposition will be huge, that the potential phase-down of the ITC won't uh, significantly kill demand. Um, talk about your outlook on those issues broadly and whether you see those as potentially throwing a wrench in the works and killing the demand you right now expect to see. Yeah, I mean, this, this is really important. The The policies that we have in the U.S. today um, uh, need to stay to, in order to allow the industry to continue to grow and continue to reduce its cost. If the policy changes before we hit the, the inflection point where the cost curve is uh, sustainable without incentives, um, it, it will essentially destroy all the investments that have been made um, uh, previously. So, so, so that is important. So, so we actually do invest heavily into our, our team to, to uh, defend the existing policies. So just so, at Solar City, we have over 18 people dedicated in, in government affairs. Um, we, we, we get involved in all the uh, state policies that, that, we, that we need to. Um, and this is actually something I wish that uh, some of the other solar companies would do too. Um, it, sometimes it just feels like the, the investment into the space from, from many of our our competitors is, is 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 extremely weak. And I'm actually going to call someone out and, and uh, call it bad or good. I'm going to call out Vivint Solar for for, uh, for 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 the lack of of investment into in this space. Uh, to me, it's, it's it's pure negligence. And uh, as the solar industry, everybody has to invest in this space and um, uh, and, and really uh, uh, support the existing policies and expanding it. I mean, I agree with you completely, Lyndon. I mean, obviously, when I was at Sun Edison, we carried a lot of that on our back as well. And it's important that, you know, everyone contributes there. You know, I love hearing that because I'm always thinking about the policy angle for business development. So uh, it's it's great to hear that because I think it's so important for, um, for maintaining and growing your business. Um, one question I had for you, Lyndon, was on and, – and Stephen sort of mentioned the value of solar versus net metering. And one of the questions I had was as you look at integrating storage into what you're doing, um, will it be more – important to be able to capture those values in a way, you know, that something like the value of solar, where you're looking at all the different value streams might be more useful or, uh, you know, how do you see policy shifting as you move toward incorporating energy storage? Yeah. To me, the most important thing for policy to start recognizing is that the current energy source is polluting for free. Um, and, And let's call it what it is. It's free pollution. Uh, And until there's a point where people are like, either admit that you are polluting for free. Just, just say it. Just, just it, it, say you are polluting for free. But that, that cost has to be incorporated into the current cost of energy. And if it's not, then you have to support those who are doing the right thing and not polluting. Um, so when it comes to the value of solar, it's important to include that it's not polluting. And if, if, you, if you don't, then one uh, source of energy 
is highly subsidized because all of its pollution cost is uh, uh, pushed externally, but not included into the, the cost of energy. So uh, you, you have to include those two. Uh, and, and so then, so then that is the value of solar, and I, and I think uh, 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 net metering policies today um, is, is a simplistic, easy policy that works and um, includes those benefits. Over time, um, if you look at large-scale deployment, um, at that point, I do agree that it has to change. Um, but at the current rates of deployment, when you have 1% penetration, it's ridiculous to consider changing it right now. Uh, look at changing it when you have 15, 20% penetrations. Um, uh, the, this concept that there's a, a, a death spiral or cost shift is, is incorrect. Um, there is no death spiral. Um, people may have heard me say this before. If you're a utility and you've been in business for 100 years and you've never seen change, then change may look like death to you. But it's not, it's not death. It's just change. So, so, so they should not call it a death spiral. So they, they should just call it a, a change spiral. And yes, their business model has to evolve. And yes, the solar industry has to step up. Once you start hitting large penetrations, you have to address the grid concerns. You have to address voltage control. You have to address peak loads. You have to address demand management. You have to address these, these, these problems that, that, that we will create when you get to large penetrations. But to impose those problems before those things occur, Knowing that there are solutions that are in the works to solve those problems is too premature. And speaking of change, I want to shift gear, gears a little bit here and talk about change to business models within the solar industry. And of course, a lot of companies moving into loans, including Solar City now in a pretty big way. After some experimentation and uh, some hints, you, it sounds like you've got a new loan product out finally. And, uh, of course, all the major solar services companies are trying to o- offer loans in some fashion. What is specifically driving you to make the change and go into loans uh, in a much bigger way? And how much of your business do you think will be loans in the coming years? Yeah, we've actually been working on this for, for a long time. You know, it's, it's actually closer to about 18 months now on this. This is our, our officially our largest product launch in the company's history. Um, and it's it, it's a big launch. We, we, we had to train thousands of salespeople. We had to uh, get the software and everything integrated. You had to get all the licenses. So this was a really really big launch. I've been working on it for, for a while. The uh, the thing I've never liked about traditional loans is the the loan is uh, doesn't uh, tie to the incentive of the solar company. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if you get a, if, if you're a homeowner, you go and buy a solar system, and then you get, a, then it's followed up by a loan. Um, whether your solar system is working or not, you are you are still paying your loan. And so, so one of the beauties of a power purchase agreement is that the incentive of the solar production is aligned with the customer and the solar company. Uh, the the solar company wants it to to produce as much energy as possible. The customer wants as much energy as possible, so the alignment is perfect. Um, with our uh, new solar loan product, which, which we call My Power, uh, it is it's the blend of a power purchase agreement uh, and ownership, and so you essentially paying your loan off with the production of the solar system. And then another thing I like about it is it's really hard for the average consumer to calculate the levelized cost of energy. 
it, it's, it's super hard. So, so you've got your term, you've got your interest rate, you've got your cost. Um, the way we sell the loan is a levelized cost of energy. So we sell it in terms of cost per kilowatt hour, which is unique uh, in, in the sector. No, one, no one's doing it that way. So, so when, when, when our customer gets the loan, we say your loan is going to cost you 16 cents a kilowatt hour. Will you have so, a, a, an escalator each year by chance? Yeah, so we, we, we're, matching, we're designing the loan uh, uh, almost identically to the PPA, um, except now you own it. So if, if you were to give it a, a, an example in, in, in California, our current PPA pricing is 15 cents a kilowatt hour with an escalator of 2.9%. With the loan product, year one, you'd start off at roughly 16 cents a kilowatt hour with a 2.9% escalator. Um, after year two, you get the tax credit and you apply that to the loan. That essentially buys down your loan to 11 or 12 cents a kilowatt hour. And, uh, and then you still have your 2.9% escalator. But then you're comparing your PPA price of 15 cents versus 11 or 12 cents, both escalating at 2.9. Um, the uh, the MyPower product is, is, is offers greater savings to, to the homeowner. Um, now, there's one caveat. If, if you aren't a... A federal taxpayer, uh, or you, or you have enough deductions that you can't value the tax credit, then uh, the PPA is better. So I want to shift gears here because we're kind of running low on time, and I want to talk a little bit more about your business model. And um, and I'd just like you to explain a little, with a little bit more detail here, because I think there are some questions from a lot of investors out there about how you're valued, and people have criticize and raise questions about this retained value model. So for people who don't know, retained value is basically based on projections of future income in present dollars. And this is, um, this is important because you kind of, you lose some money up front on leases as you pay off investors, and then you get a lot of value later in that lease or PPA life. And then the retained value model assumes that around 90% of customers are going to extend their contracts with you for an additional 20 years after that initial 20 years, um, which is a pretty big part of that each installation's retained value. So seems pretty high. Analysts have called that model a black box of assumptions. I'd love for you to respond to that. Yeah, sure. Just, just one correction. The, uh, in the retained value, uh, the assumption is 90%, but only for 10 years, not, not, for, not for 20 years. Oh, the 10 years on top of the... Existing twenty-year contract, 20 yeah, exactly. Total thirty years. Okay, so yes, um, so with with Gap Financials, um, Gap forces us to recognize the revenue uh, over the life of the contract. So we only recognize it over over twenty years. Um, but you have your operating cost, all your overhead that you have to recognize on on day one. Uh, so on a unit basis, in terms of looking at at, at the cash flow over over a one year period. Every system we deploy is cash flow positive. So, so we, and then it, uh, it creates a lot of cash in the future. But over just in the one-year period, every system we deploy is, is, um, is cash flow positive. But when you have the growth rate that we have and the, and the overhead that, that supports that growth rate, from a gap perspective, our uh, earnings per share, as we keep on growing, is, is actually going to get more and more negative. And this is why we came up with uh, retained value. The retained value is the discounted cash flow after we'd paid back our tax equity investors. You still need to subtract debt, but debt is on the balance sheet, so you can see that. 
but uh, the retained value is after we paid back the tax equity investors. Because right now, there's no place where it records that in, in GAAP. Now, every single fund has different uh, uh, terms. You know, some, some tax equity investors take 20% of the cash flows. Other tax equity investors take 50% of the cash flows. Um, those who take higher cash flows have lower IRRs. Those who have higher IRRs have lower cash flows. So, so the, all the terms are, are, are different in every tax equity fund. And so we, we came up with retained value, which is essentially what is the cash coming to Solar City uh, after we paid back our tax equity investors? Um, if you as an analyst disagree with the renewal, then modify the renewal. Uh, I, and no one knows the answer. I, I think there's a clearing price and the, the solar system is on your roof. Um, uh, if you can, energy is a commodity, so I think people are going to renew it. Um, but if you, if you don't like that, then change it to whatever you think the right answer is. So we, we felt that it is the most transparent way to deliver uh, the, uh, the, the value creation that we are doing every single day. Um, and, and we discount that value into today's numbers. And this, by the way, includes we remove all O&M and inverter replacements in that period. So um, it's net of all, all the uh, O&M and insurance and inverter uh, cost. Uh, well, I mean, I can I can vouch for the fact that we paid millions of dollars to E&Y and four partners were disagreeing with each other on Gap Financials. And it's a reason why you have to create these things because – I mean, post Enron, basically anybody who does anything that has long-term value um, has to be booked over that life of that contract, even if you get all the cash up front. Yep, exactly. So, so one final question, and uh, I'd love for you to – this is business model related as well. So I think when I talk to people, some in the industry are kind of split on your success. I mean, it's a wild success story for everyone in the industry, but – and no one would argue with that. But I, I hear a lot of chatter as well about the business model itself being sustainable long term, right? People point to the fact that there are no, pretty much no national residential electrical or roofing or plumbing businesses due to the cost of operating in so many different markets. Uh, solar kind of fits that contractor model. Um, you know, argue your case here. What do you say to naysayers who believe that a vertically integrated national solar sales model isn't sustainable given what we've seen in other contractor businesses? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good point. Like when we started the business, of course, we tried the outsourcing model. Um, and and that, that, that was a horrible customer experience and it was hard to maintain uh, quality. Um, so if you're going to own the asset for 30 years and you are the system owner and, and you are accountable for the production of that system for 30 years, uh, you want to make sure that's that's high quality, and so the best way to make sure it's high quality is if you do it. We are the owners. We're not selling to like after we paid back the tax equity investors. These are all our assets. Um, so uh, the best way to maintain quality is you do it yourself. Then, um, then the second one, of course, is uh, uh, the the cost structure. I don't think you can get to a cost structure that we need to get to to survive in a world with a, a 10% uh, ITC um, when leveraging uh, local uh, smaller uh, companies. Um, it's, I, I just haven't seen the math. Um, for those who do do that way, I, I know that our fully loaded cost is less than our competitors' variable cost. So... Um, 
I, I just don't see how, how that, that works. Then there's another challenge with, with that is when you are dependent on this, this, the, the local uh, uh, electrical market or the local solar companies, um, how do you double every year? Um, the only way you can double is either you sign up more partners or your existing partners double. Now, in order for your existing partners to double, the cash flow of the business can't support that doubling. Uh, and so the, the only way they can double is for them to go raise capital. Um, and their ability to, to actually raise uh, capital is, is, is limited. That's not their expertise. So unless you're prepared to invest into them to allow them to uh, uh, double, um, it, it won't happen. Uh, you may have some that succeed in that. Absolutely, uh, some may have the expertise to to, to do it, um, but, but uh, not all your partners. And so, therefore, those who don't, you have to sign up new partners, and then you got more distributed. Um, you don't have uh, any internal. Uh, uh, I mean, you have internal controls and you have internal quality checks. But you don't. You don't. You can't dictate. A, a business practice, and this is exactly how you do it. And this is how you install on this roof. When you see this roof, this is your installation structure. Full stop. No debate. Don't tell me you have a better uh, way of doing it. This is the way to do it. When uh, if you don't own, uh, if that's not your team, you, you can't do that. And so, so that's why we th we think it's it's the right strategy. Um, a time will play out. Um, the, the rebuttal is that there's no other home service company in the world uh, in in the U.S. that can that has ever succeeded at that, and, and that's that that's a good rebuttal. We 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 looked at that too, but the, the, it was the first time for something. The um, yeah, there is none. We can't find any in-house service business that uh, actually does all the work themselves, um, not either franchise or or, or outsourced. But uh, solar is a different animal. Mm. And just one quick last question that I forgot to sneak in. You're controlling pretty much everything now. When are we going to see an investment in an inverter manufacturer? Are you going to integrate power electronics into this manufacturing? The, uh, so I'll give you my standard answer because that's what I have to do. Um, <laughs> the, it's, we will continue to explore uh, acquisitions or partnerships uh, in any avenue in, in the supply chain um, that can reduce our cost, uh, create a better product and reduce our cost. Um, uh, and uh, if, if it so happens that uh, we, we see a inverter company that uh, can do that, great, we'll look at it. Maybe we just consider a, a partnership um, uh, there uh, uh, or the inverter companies do it themselves. Uh, I don't have a clear answer on, on, the, on the inverter side. Stay tuned, folks. That is Lyndon Rive, the co-founder and CEO of SolarCity, the largest residential solar installer here in the U.S. Lyndon, thanks a lot. This was very insightful. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, yeah, Lyndon. Great. Yeah, thanks. All right, let's uh, take a quick pause here and mention our sponsor, SMA. A properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to 30%. Maximize production and accelerate your investment payback with SMA's operations and maintenance service including 24-7 remote monitoring for commercial and utility-scale PV plants. O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit your business model and are backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA service. Find out more at www.sma-america.com. 
Two of America's biggest independent power producers, NRG and DynaG, operate portfolios that look pretty similar. NRG is 47% natural gas, 31% coal, 11% oil, and 8% renewable. DynaG is 54% coal, 45% gas, and 1% oil. The two have a lot of fossil fuel plants, but they differ in one big way, their outlook on renewables and uh, the evolution of retail markets. Dynagy doesn't really have any interest in investing in renewables. It has said so publicly and to investors. Gas and coal are its bread and butter. NRG, on the other hand, led by CEO David Crane, treats renewables, efficiency, and electric vehicles as core to its long-term strategy, even though it does have a lot of fossil fuel plants. Uh, it has acquired large solar and wind projects, acquired two uh, large solar installers, moved into electric vehicle charging, and has made investments in home energy management startups for uh, evolving its retail business. In a recent investor letter, NRG's David Crane said he wanted to be the Amazon, Apple, or Google of the electricity sector. Pretty bold words for uh, a, an executive operating in the power sector. So is NRG going to leave Dynagy in the dust? in a future world dominated by clean, distributed energy? Or is it going in too many directions and taking risky bets? Um, Catherine, would just love your thoughts on uh, why these companies are taking such wildly different approaches as you kind of watch the evolution of the independent power business. Any particular thoughts on this? Yeah, so one big thought is that the independent system operator markets are really different. So Dynagy is purchasing plants in Midwest ISO and the clearing prices in the capacity market in MISO are really low. Whereas right next door, PJM clearing prices are much higher. So the plants that are in PJM are making a lot more money than the plants in MISO. Yeah. And Dynagy is trying to fight to get a more robust capacity market there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what they're doing, instead of hedging in the other direction, the way NRG is, um, they're hedging to try to just build more fossil in. And you would think with EPA's greenhouse gas regs and all this coming along that that would somehow stymie them. But in fact, they have a really big opening with this because of FERC Order 745 and the fact that um, right now, unless it's taken to the Supreme Court, um, demand response um, and a lot of other things like um, energy efficiency, storage, anything on the demand side that is right now participating in the wholesale markets might just be completely taken down. So First Energy has a complaint. Um, Dynagy is looking at a complaint for Midwest ISO as well that would say, hey, you know, FERC shouldn't have anything to do with the distribution side of the grid. It should only work on the bulk power. None of those folks should be able to participate in the wholesale markets. It's like they're seeing blood in the water based on this court case, and they're deciding – Dynagy is saying, hey, this is great. And First Energy is doing the exact same thing, saying, hey, this is good. This means the generators are going to need to do all this work. And mm -hmm. we'll just we'll just invest in more generation. So in that context, then what they're doing is kind of a shrewd business tactic. Well, it is short term. And, yeah. you know, Jiggers actually talked about this, too, on our last episode when we were talking about natural gas, because it's really a short term way for them to make a bunch of money, um, you know, considering some of this may have an adverse impact on demand response and other distributed resources. But in the long run, it's going to be it's going to end up a bunch of stranded assets. It really will. Well, so I think that there's this sort of 
classic desire to make it us versus them, you know, which I obviously do on the utility side. <laughs> I think on on Dynergy versus NRG, I think it's important to note that NRG's yield co is still a majority fossil, right? So it's mostly coal and gas. It's not mostly solar and wind, um, notwithstanding the big wind deal that they finally did in NYLD, um, you know, uh, like a few weeks ago. But I, I just think that, you know, NRG bought Edison Missions uh, coal assets out of bankruptcy. They bought natural gas assets that are distressed. And so they're not saying that they're moving away from fossil fuels. They're just saying that they're open to doing renewable energy. Um, so, I, I mean, I think David Crane's one of the most important dynamic voices in the space today. But I just don't see the stark difference between NRG and Dynergy. Totally agree there on the wholesale side. But on the retail side, well, actually, let's step back. Well, there are a lot of former NRG people at Dynergy. So the companies are kind of linked in that way. A lot of uh, employees have gone over there. Um, but, but let's look at the retail markets, right? I mean, NRG really believes that energy efficiency, um, consumers taking control of their uh, energy usage within the home using software and IT, uh, that retail solar, that distributed solar deployment, those are all the future of the business. And so while there haven't been massive changes on the wholesale level and they are buying up these natural gas plants, um, which which I think is important to note, uh, they, they see some pretty major change on the retail side. And, and there's a lot more innovation going on there that I think is very different from what Dynagy is doing, which is um, almost nothing innovative on the retail side. Right, but everyone sees it. I mean, the thing is, is that like they all hire the same McKinsey consultants. McKinsey's saying the same thing to everyone, which is that wholesale power prices are going to collapse. The reason they're going to collapse is we're moving into supply abundance. The reason we're moving into supply abundance is there's a lot of distributed generation coming on. Um, and so everyone knows the same thing. But like Catherine said, Dynergy's playing the short game, NRG's playing the long game, which is interesting, but NRG's not completely playing the long game. If they were, and they really believe strongly in renewables, they would divest of all their coal and natural gas assets, sell them all to Dynergy um, at whatever price they could get now, and then they would actually redeploy all that money into more renewables. But they're not doing that. They're, they're keeping both. And so I'm not putting down NRG. I think they're doing a great job. But I think I'm not going to give them a Nobel Peace Prize for solving climate change. Yeah. And the way I used it, the, I termed it as a, as a hedge. So I was saying they were hedging to the distributed side, but, but definitely they haven't backed off on the wholesale side. Yeah. Wait a second, Jigger. They gave Obama the Nobel Peace Prize. Why can't David Crane get one? Yeah, and look how that worked out. Yeah. I think Obama like increased the number of Middle East countries we've bombed. <laughs> All right, I actually want to step back because I think it's helpful for people to understand how these companies kind of operate and what their histories are. So the independent power producers, they're known as IPPs. They're the unregulated companies that, uh, that they sell prices at market rates without a guaranteed rate of return through a utility commission. So they're inherently much riskier than a traditional regulated utility. And the, I'm interested in this space because um, – it's gone through so much turmoil in the last decade and a half. You know, in the mid-90s and 2000s, there was this boom in new power plant development led by the IPPs. They way overbuilt. Uh, and then when demand on the, uh, the grid started flattening, they got totally screwed. Many of these companies, including NRG and Dynagy, went through bankruptcy, and they're reemerging now with different strategies. Um, 
So today, as everyone's kind of watching the remaining public IPPs, debating their strategies, and I think that, that it's important to, to debate their strategies and look at what they're doing as they come out of this year, this this decade of turmoil, because we're going into another uncertain area, which is like distributed generation, changing retail markets, coming EPA regs, sluggish demand. Um, and so it's, it's kind of interesting to me to compare NRG and Dynagy precisely because they're betting on two entirely different outcomes here. Well, and they're not just betting on them. They're actually investing in trying to create the market that will allow them to succeed. Yeah, I think the real question is whether NRG or Dynergy will actually be the winner of this transition. And at least from my perspective, I wouldn't choose either of them. I mean, I think it's more likely that Pattern or Nextera or Sun Edison or Solar City is the ultimate winner in 2025 than NRG or Dynergy. And we're talking about this because E&E Publishing wrote this great article comparing the two strategies of these companies. So we're going to link to that on the podcast page. Highly recommended reading for anyone who follows the utility space. Um, I think just a very nice summation of uh, these two different approaches. Let's go on to our third topic now. Uh, The Nobel Prize in Physics this year was awarded to a trio of inventors for discovering how to make blue LEDs. Before their discovery, which came after a lot of trial and error, um, we could only produce red and green LEDs. The process in getting blue LEDs is pretty complicated, probably far too technical to get into here. But in short, the inventors worked on ways to grow semiconductor materials, dope them, find the right structure on which to make the LED. And they ended up finding the right recipe with the and with that came the invention of the blue LED, and with that came the ability to make white LEDs. Um, and so, st- solid state lighting became something that could be used for everyday use within the home. Uh, complete game changer. Of course, it took a couple get decades for it to become cost competitive. But today, LEDs can rival incandescence in light quality and are coming down dramatically in cost and price. And uh, the Nobel Prize Award is proof of how far LEDs have come over the last couple of decades. Jigger, what do you think about this one? I love LEDs. I mean, I started working with Sylvania back in 1999 when I was at BP Solar. Um you know, because there was a recognition back then that LEDs were going to be a game changer, particularly partnered with solar and and particularly for emerging markets and energy access. And I think you see that today. Yeah. So I, I, I reached out to Steve Nadell, who's the executive director of ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And, you know, he was really upbeat about this breakthrough and the Nobel, the Nobel Prize. And he said um, that DOE and EPA get some credit for this. They deserve credit for DOE developing test procedures and products and really highlighting the importance of quality. And then EPA's Energy Star program really giving that quality mark, that kind of assurance for residential LEDs. So he was really bullish on them. But they also, ACEEE also sent me some numbers um, that DOE came out with showing that um, you know, by 2030, the market penetration of LEDs is projected to drive 40% reduction in energy consumption. That's like 24 million U.S. homes. Um, the sales, you know, the market share will be 68% of lumen hour sales in 2020, but over 90% in 2030. I mean, this is kind of a leapfrog technology. And um, I see this, you know, certainly the prize was was worthy given this kind of penetration that we're potentially going to see. Yeah. And of course, we're going to see energy consumption rise in developing countries. But I haven't quite seen the uh, measurements on this, but certainly much 
less so by using LEDs instead of conventional lighting technologies. And what I think the the uh, Nobel Prize Committee w- was correct in pointing out is that this is really revolutionary for serving developing countries. And we've discussed the importance of LEDs for integration with uh, distributed off-grid solar systems and how the combination of the two with mobile money is really creating entirely new business models and, and easier deployment of solar lighting. So really transformative and not just because of energy consumption or energy reductions in developed countries, but because of the uh, incredible energy access and lighting access that we could see through LEDs in, in, in countries in need. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's worth mentioning that when you think about solar, I mean, solar is really amazing because it actually uh, doesn't burn something. You don't create steam. Uh, to create electricity. It's really new, and that's why Albert Einstein got his Nobel Prize on the photoelectric effect. I think when you think about LEDs, it's the same thing, right? I mean, LEDs, if made properly, will never burn out, right? I mean, LEDs will just fade over time, and that fading will probably improve with next-generation LEDs. But LEDs never burn out. I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary. And I do think that it's this level of sea change that we need to achieve to actually really decarbonize uh, the planet. We're not going to do it just by carbon sequestration or some other sort of like 20th century concept. Uh, I saw a stat from the DOE. There are 400,000 lights, LEDs deployed in the U.S. in 2009. There are 20 million deployed today, a factor of 50 increase. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Brad Plumer over at Vox had a great story kind of summing up the context of why this Nobel Prize was important. And he uh, said he linked to a study that showed that the cost of providing light has dropped 3,000-fold since the 1800s. Very compelling stat there. And LED prices are expected to drop another 20% this year. We've got lots of bulbs on the market that are between the $5 and $10 mark now, some below $10 without any incentives at all. Um, that's a price threshold that you're going to get a lot of more people to buy. All right. Well, that's the end of the show. And we will wrap up by telling our listeners something they do not know. Catherine, you're up first this week. What do you got? Oh, yeah. This is something Jigger's going to love. If you haven't already read this, Jigger, the upset average Miko customer is going off the grid. So this is in Maui. They finally, there's a customer, just a regular Joe, got so frustrated and upset that he said, I don't want this anymore. He's going off the grid. And this is like the, this is where the defection is starting is in Hawaii. Um, and you know, I know a former teacher of one of my kids lives there now and she says they won't interconnect my PV system. And so I pay $500 a month for my electricity and I am getting really sick of it. Wait, I missed this. Is this someone that you know, or is this in a news story? No, it's in, it's in the Maui news Upset average Miko customer to go off grid. Well, I mean, the one thing that's interesting is I saw Congresswoman uh, Tulsi Gabbard um, at the Narendra Modi events in in New York, and we had this conversation. And I said, "Look, you know, you're going to have a revolution of the proletariat," and and she finally got it. I mean, it took me a while. I've been, you know, like really pressing this with her, and she's finally like, "Oh, you're right. I'm, I sort of have to do something about this." All right, Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So really interesting Twitter fight uh, today or yesterday. So Justin Gway at uh, Sierra Club and uh, the folks at Oil Change International just came out with this new report showing how almost none of the money 
that the World Bank spends on energy for all or energy broadly is actually reaching the poor. And then one of our really good friends, um, Morgan Brazilian, you know, sort of had to come out with a response because, you know, he was sort of embarrassed um, that sort of said, well, actually, all this money is going to poorest regions, which really doesn't mean anything. What it really means is that that money is going to mining companies, um, energy needs in poor countries in Africa. So I think that there's really a setup here for a huge fight now, finally, where the World Bank has to admit that they really haven't focused on poor people and getting them electricity for the past 15 years. Is the report accurate? Completely. Basically, what's happening is is that this is the Bill Gates thing that I was on, right, is that ultimately, when you build a new coal power plant or you build a new wind farm and solar farm, and it has to use the grid, unless you extend the grid to the poor people, they're not actually getting that power. It's only the people who are on the grid that get that power. And the people on the grid are industrial users and, and rich people. Well, I'll uh, take a look at that report and perhaps link it to it on the podcast page. I'm definitely going to check it out. Uh, quick stat for me on California's drought. So the state usually gets about 20% of in-state electricity from hydro. And because of the severe drought that's ongoing, that number has actually been cut in half this year, according to a stat from the Energy Information Administration. It's, uh, it's only getting about 10% of electricity from hydro now. And so natural gas has done a lot to fill in the gap, but the uh, California grid operator said that wind and solar were also helping out quite a bit to make up the shortfall, so notable there. I'm a big supporter of smart hydropower. Like I, I really like run of river facilities. I think powering up existing dams that don't currently have a powerhouse is a really good idea. Incremental development of existing dams. Um, but this is kind of one of those trade-off conversations that we need to think about in a long-term warming context, similar to like water availability issues for concentrating solar power plants in the desert. Um, anyway, I thought it was worth a stat worth sharing. Very cool. That is all for the show, folks. To take our listener survey and tell us what you want to hear, go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast and follow the link in our show notes. And while there, you can find links to stories related to the topics we discussed and subscribe to us through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Uh, make sure to visit our sponsor, SMA. You can find out more about them and their O&M offerings and their inverters and everything else at sma-america.com. Thank you so much to them for their support. Thank you for listening. Catherine, I hope you get over the Nationals loss. Have a great week. Get out of bed. Go see your family. <laughs> Thanks. It's a, it's a three-day weekend, so <laughs> we have plenty of time to soak our heads. <laughs> Jigger, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You too. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week, as always. Thank you.